find ourselves here again. Yeah, here we are, living the quarantine dream, as they say. <laughs> uh, do they say that? I'm not sure that's a thing. I thought it was a thing. <laughs> well, I was texting a friend the other day, and she described it more as a nightmare. So. Yeah, that's true. I, I remember thinking <laughs> thinking back to the beginning of all this. I thought, oh, I'm going to get a little mini break from the norm, from the usual, but uh, <laughs> not, not so much anymore. Not so many. Yeah, man. Yeah, not so many at all. More like uh, I don't know, massive or something. I think I think we like the word seismic, right? We like that word. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, as in like a, a seismic shift in the larger cultural narrative or something like sure. that. Actually, <laughs> actually, that that sounds a bit like you. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, moving on. You know, last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about how as a culture, despite our ideological differences, we actually do share the same DNA if we're talking about the stories that define us, our shared stories uh, that form the, the foundation of our beliefs. Yeah, we, we, we share the, the Christian story so that to, in, in the Western world at least, to invite people to explore the Christian narrative is in the sense to invite people to discover the origins of themselves. Right? Not, not, not my own claim, but a claim made by uh, mm -hmm. Frederick Nietzsche in fact. Right, and it's a strange claim, I guess, if uh, coming from the uh, atheist of all atheists. Uh, in a way, maybe he's sizing up the competition. He understands the size of the thing which he's positioned himself Ex against. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. You know, it makes me think uh, of, I mean, it's kind of a weird example, but if LeBron James w w were watching old videos of Michael Jordan or something, you know, and he's <laughs> watching Michael play and he understands that this is the legend to beat in the entire history of basketball, uh, this is the guy that he's up against. Uh -huh. Or, in, you know, in my case, uh, as a painter, not to put myself in the shoes of LeBron James or uh, Michael, uh, Michael Jordan, for that matter, but uh, but I guess it would be like me understanding that I'm up against Picasso or something like that. A every painter has to come to grips with Picasso. Yeah, or or otherwise, you never really get out from under their sway. And for Nietzsche, if yeah. if you if you don't understand the magnitude of the Christ event, then you haven't even mm -hmm. begun. Uh, you you can't even begin the journey toward a, a sort of right. real true full-blooded atheism you, you you'll you'll remain and forever will be in god's shadow as he puts it uh, and i think the mistake yeah. that so many atheists make over and over again is that they just keep underestimating the significance of what's happened in that christ event uh the, the, the christian narrative is in a sense the sky which we live under and the challenge as nietzsche sees it is something like can you run fast enough and far enough to get out from under mm. the sky because that's essentially what it's going to take. Right. I, I really do get what you're saying. It would be like me um, patting Picasso or Rembrandt on the head and saying, nice try, guys. Uh, now, now watch this. You know, that, that's kind of, it's, it's ludicrous. Uh, so whether I like their work or not, you know, here are two people that have shaped the very reality that I live in as an artist. And the only way for me to find my own voice as a painter is to humbly acknowledge the power that they have over my creative life right otherwise your voice uh, will never be your own and if you if you don't recognize mm -hmm. that then then someone sort of needs to draw you a map and, and put one of those big sure. red arrows on it that says you are here 
Uh, and actually, yeah. that, that's what Nietzsche does. He, he draws a sort of philosophical map in a, in a book called Genealogy of Morals. And, and that's his, his sort of red arrow, essentially, where he says that this is where you, you and I are in human history. This is, your, mm -hmm. this is our genealogy, if you like. Uh, mm, interesting, interestingly yeah. enough, last, last year, the agnostic author, Tom Holland, so he's not an, an aggressive atheist like Nietzsche, but he's, he's an agnostic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom Holland, he, he's an award-winning historian, published a book called Dominion, in which he essentially puts the historical flesh on the philosophical skeletal structure provided by Nietzsche a, a hundred hmm. years earlier. So he, he uses actual history then? Yeah, yeah, Greeks, Romans, Persians, the Christ, the Christ event follows it through medieval history, uh, which brings about the Enlightenment, uh, etc. Huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's the entire history of, of the world um, and then he's saying that it shifts um, mm -hmm. after being deeply informed by the Christian narrative. Uh, and this yeah, and, and, he, and he traces that out. An entirely new can of, uh -huh, right. And so I guess this would open up an entirely new can of worms. Um, and I guess that we could say that whether we like it or not, in our progressive culture today, you know, including human rights, social justice, even present day wokeness, all of these things are essentially deeply indebted to the Christian story, whether we like it or not. Yeah, and, and that's exactly where Holland takes it. it it's, uh, his last chapter is entitled Woke. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's interesting. It, it sounds like a great read, uh, but I, I, I've heard it's all, you know, there's 500 pages of it. Is that right? That's, that's right. So it's a, a good, good bedtime read. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, essentially, he's, he's writing about the, the shape of humanity in, in the light of the, the Christ event. Right. So we've been talking lately about story and why the Bible gives us so much narrative and then why Jesus tells so many stories and so on and so forth. And, and then we, we've talked a lot about how story has actually shaped humanity. But this week, I think it would be great if we could focus a bit on the actual contents of that story, mm -hmm. essentially the overarching plot line of the Christian narrative, which is not only a story that has shaped humanity, as we've been saying, but the story itself actually revolves around the question, uh, what does it mean to be human? Sure. So for anyone coming to Trinity Heights for a while, you, you know, this is a question we ask all the time, you know, what does it mean to be human? And that's mm -hmm. because that's the question at the heart of the Bible. In fact, that the Bible actually starts off sort of answering that question. Genesis chapter one, God made humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, so human beings, are, are, we're told, are, have this vocation to reflect the image of God. That, that is to say, we're, we're meant to reflect God's goodness, God's kindness, God's love, God's compassion, God's generosity, God's mm -hmm. justice. And on and on it goes. And, and then right. Right, right after that comes the command to, to go forth and multiply, to fill the earth and, and rule over it. And, and so often what we do is we look around the earth and we think, well, we're almost 8 billion people now. Yeah, we've, we've multiplied the earth. Uh, we've, multi we've filled the earth and, and uh, we've mm -hmm. ruled over the earth. So, you know, mission accomplished. But is that really, mm -hmm. really what's happened? Um, well, only if we think that we can sort of separate out the command to multiply, um, to, to fill the earth from the human vocation, mm -hmm. that is to, to, to be God's image bearers. You know, so the point being is we're not meant to multiply anything you and I felt like. It was not just about filling the earth with any old thing. Mm. We were meant to multiply God's image, you know, his, his goodness, his kindness, his love, 
his compassion and multiplied sure. that, right? Uh, but instead, very often what's happened is we've multiplied violence, we've multiplied cruelty, greed, betrayal, deceit, injustice, poverty, and, and, and in as much as we sort of fail to reflect God's image, we've failed at the task of being human, which, which I know that may sound like a really weird thing to say. Uh, how, how can I fail at being human? Uh, because a, a human being is, is what I am. You know, I wake up every morning, I do it every day. But, it, but, to, but if to be human is to actually reflect the good and perfect image of God, right? Mm. Right, yeah. So if I get what you're saying, we aren't meant to just make things up as we go along, whether we like it or not. We don't get to decide the ultimate goal of humanity. You know, I just read the other day that Elon Musk uh, announced the Neuralink. And if this thing is successful, then at some time in the future, we will be able to pair our human consciousness with AI, essentially back up our brains. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad uh, Elon's on that. Yeah, I mean, last year there was a, the 100th uh, issue of uh, Wired, you know, that tech mag, which they had this, these interviews with various uh, scientists. And, and Brian Green, who's a string theorist, just sort of, celebrates the fact that artificial intelligence will just replace biological life on, on the planet like that's our destiny to replace ourselves this way if, if that happens he says so be it you know <laughs> I mean, this is wild this is wild sci-fi stuff i i know we're not making any predictions about whether any of this will be uh, successful or not or whether Neuralink will actually go through but uh, i guess it's important to note that humanity does actively work to shape itself and, right and works tirelessly to determine its own end right absolutely and and the the drama of scripture is actually about how we have attempted to do just that in multiple countless mm -hmm. different ways it's, it's, obviously it's not just about artificial intelligence that's just the latest or, or perhaps future version but we've, mm -hmm. we've been attempting to point humanity off in some other trajectory right from the beginning that's that's genesis chapter sure. three essentially Gen genesis chapter one says mm -hmm. this is what humans are called to be this is our vocation and chapter three, humans are saying, nah, we've got this other project going on. <laughs> you know, the, the serpent says, right. you will be as God. So we, we reach out, we take the fruit, and the human vocation gets hijacked over and over again by all, the, all this other stuff. And, mm. and, and so, so the human vocation is that reflect God's image. Uh, and so mm. essentially to abandon that vocation is to abandon our humanity. Uh, and so the Judeo-Christian narrative go, goes off essentially in search of this, this image. Uh, that, that's a narrative tension, if you like, in the entire, of the entire Bible. You know, will God's plan to fill the earth with his image uh, with, with, and rule over it through his image of beauty, love, and justice, will it, will it ever happen? How is it going to happen? Or will God's purpose mm -hmm. for humanity be uh, sort of forever thwarted? Has, has it come to a dead end, as it were? Uh, this is, if you like, uh, this is like the, the, the huge sort of question mark that just hangs over the, the sort of entire uh, entire Bible. Hmm. You know, it, it's it's amazing because what you're saying right here uh, is that, at least for me, is, is like holding a, a ideological or theological defibrillators up to the Bible, you know, and really shocking it back to life. Because <laughs> when you grow up in, in, in a church tradition like I did, and you've you had it all your life, your parents are Christians, they're missionaries, et cetera, et cetera, then things do have a tendency to get a bit murky. Or on the flip side, you might have not grown up in the church 
and then you you could see the Bible as being outdated or outmoded or it's kind of a book of fairy tales. Either way, uh, the Bible almost becomes kitsch uh, or a collection of cute stories uh, that just so happen to be placed alongside a few other stories that are actually very deeply disturbing, you know, right. to the point that when you're reading the Bible, it becomes a very fractured event. Uh, you, you come across something and you're like, well, that was weird, moving on. Right. And, and so we find this sort of huge distance between, you know, our world and, and the, the biblical world, our lives and the yep. biblical narrative. Um, yep. But, but it, you know, it's, it's amazing how that, that difference, you know, that distance sort of it just closes when, when we realize mm -hmm. the, the sorts of questions and answers that the Bible is actually goes off looking for, like, like the one we're talking about, you know, what, what does it mean to be human? Sure. Um, Israel's history is, if you like, an exploration of, of precisely that question. You know, God, God calls Israel to be his people. Uh, his people meaning, you know, people who actually look like him, people, people who reflect sure. his image. Otherwise, in, in what sense are you his people, right? But, but as, as you know, there's this sort of very repetitive cycle in the Old Testament where over and over again, Israel turns to idols. And, you know, these, these idols had their own sort of morbidly interesting stories which produce certain values. And so Israel's life gets shaped around these idols and these stories and, and, and their stories and their values. And so they start to reflect the image of those idols. And, and so in as much as Israel fails to reflect God's image, again, they, they sort of fail at the task of being, being human. Um, mm. And so you, you get to the New Testament, and th this is the question that Paul picks up in, in places like Romans and uh, various other places. Mm -hmm. Has Israel's story, and more broadly, the human story, come to a close? Has, has it got mm. stuck, and can it get unstuck? And then Paul makes this astonishing announcement in Colossians. He says, Jesus is the image and exact representation of the invisible God. And many people think, ah, he's talking about the, the deity of Christ there. But, but actually, he's not. He, he's, what he's talking about there is Christ's humanity. So his actual physical body then, the invisible God made visible via human flesh. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But he's, he's, not he's not just saying something like, oh, look, Jesus is human just like us. He's saying something mm -hmm. much more earth shattering. He's saying, look. Here is the first truly human being. The wait, the first human, but what about the rest of us? And what about you and me? I, I thought, yeah, yeah. We thought we were right. human, right? But if to be human <laughs> is to perfectly reflect uh, the image of God, well, you do the math, right? And, mm -hmm. and so by announcing Jesus is the, the first human, Paul is essentially saying that the story. Uh, is not has got unstuck. This, this story has a future. God, God's plan to fill the earth and rule the earth mm. with the, the image is, is going ahead. It's the sort of reopening of of, of uh, humanity's mm. story. Sure. So when you say that Christ is the first human, I guess you mean the first fully formed human. So if we've been made in God's image, or at least have the potential to reflect God's image, then um, we're, we're always falling short of that. And 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 when we do fall short of that. Uh, we're sort of functioning on a, a subhuman level, mm -hmm. or, or every time yeah, we fall short, we're actually we're actually dehumanizing ourselves. Sure. And I guess this is this has become the case for so long that we understand this subhuman level to just be the way that things are. This is the new norm. Uh, and so you know, it comes to the point now where 
we have a very common phrase when we make a mistake and we just say, well, sorry, only human. Right. I'm only human or, or to err is human. It's like the excuse for, sure. it's a catch-all, right? It's the excuse for all of mm -hmm. our failings and, and foibles and screw-ups. But like, like you're pointing out, right, uh, our, our failures in, in the context of this story would actually mean the opposite. It, it's not because mm -hmm. we're human. It's because we've become something less than human. Like you said, we're, we're operating at a sort of sub subhuman level. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and actually, that, that's, that's where the entire narrative converges. I think the whole biblical narrative sort of culminates in, in this incredibly dehumanizing event that we know is the crucifixion. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the cross of Christ is, is undoubtedly this very dehumanizing thing where there's betrayal, you have abandonment, lies, false witnesses, a sham trial, torture, crucifixion, death. It's, it's like the mm -hmm. convergence of all of this dehumanizing behavior. Mm. But instead of allowing himself to be dehumanized by all of this, it's as if Jesus absorbs all of this, he, he bears it on the mm. cross, and he keeps reflecting the love and, and compassion and justice of God. He says, look, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. So right up to his last breath, Jesus is imaging God back to us. Now, another way of saying that, of course, is to say that uh, Jesus' humanity uh, remains fully 100% intact. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, the question becomes, you know, what, what happens? What happens to this fully-fledged human being? The first mm -hmm. human being. <laughs> well, to bring it back to our first conversation in this series, resurrection is what happens. And uh, I think in the context of, of, of this discussion, we, we see yet another dimension to the meaning of resurrection. The resurrection is the vindication of Christ's humanity. It's the, vind it's the vindication mm -hmm. of a particular type of humanity. Uh, not, not humanity shaped any old way, but a humanity that faithfully, consistently reflects the, the image of God. Uh, so, so through the resurrection, God is, is saying, look, I vindicate humanity shaped like this. This is the humanity I stand by and which I will multiply and fill the earth with. And, and so the, the, you have the cross and resurrection is, is this sort of reopening of, of that story. It's, it's, the, it's the answer to the narrative tension for the whole Bible. So there's something bigger going on here, much bigger than the classic question, where are you going when you die? Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that if the entire story of scripture is the story of humanity and what it means to be truly human, then all of a sudden we really are transported to reality right now in 2020 in New York or wherever, coronavirus, quarantine and all. Yeah, right. So, so, to, so to bring all of this back to our sort of overarching theme for this series, which is, you know, how, how can we be a community of Christians and skeptics together? Well, how, how can the church, how can we reposition ourselves to enter into to meaningful uh, dialogue with a, a, an increasingly secularized culture? Uh, this, this much bigger thing, as you put it, is, is I think really important for all that. So, you know, just so for example, just now you mentioned that, that question about, you know, wh where are you going when you die, which we've trained, I think, a couple of generations of Christians to ask that question. Mm -hmm. But in, in our context, it's, it's really not that helpful, precisely because people have to buy into so many other things before they can seriously be invested in that conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, what, what I mean is this, like, do, you have to sort of wonder, do, do you believe in heaven in the first place? You're trying to tell me how to go to heaven when I die, but do, do I even believe in him? Do you believe in annihilation or hell? Do you believe there's such a thing as sin? Because you might have to buy into 
the concept of sin first before you can believe you need salvation from it. So, so sin requires, uh, do you believe in God? Does God have anything to do with Jesus? And then just the list goes on and on. But what if your friends don't believe any of those things, right? The conversation becomes all, <laughs> what, what, how, I mean, you know these conversations, you've been in them. The conversation becomes really speculative, <laughs> yeah. very hypothetical, goes round and round in circles. Uh, I've had, I've had plenty mm-hmm. of these conversations, which, which, I, which I started. Um, uh, and, uh, you, you know, we, we're, we're asking people to, you know, essentially, you know, do you agree with this premise? Do you agree with that premise? A whole host mm-hmm. of different things before the conversation can proceed in a way that's meaningful for both, both people. Um, yeah. Whereas what, I, what I've found is that whenever I ask the question, what does it mean to be human? It, it, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an atheist, you're an agnostic, you're a new ager, everyone is immediately mm. invested in that conversation uh, because we all have a stake in it. Uh, yeah. I, I, was, I was talking to my, my friend Stuart recently who, who had uh, two conversations uh, with with different people not long ago, and he said both those conversations lasted for hours, right? For mm. Hours, and each conversation he said was just triggered by that one simple question, right? Mm. So it's, it's a it's a very small adjustment to make, but it, it has a I think I think it has a lot of potential. Right. It seems like the question, "What does it mean to be human?" then kind of opens up a whole host of opportunities. That allows us to kind of be the opposite of a of a Debbie Downer, <laughs> right. and I know I keep bringing you, you up you mentioned last week, yeah, yeah, but that's, yeah. that's a good, that's exactly right. It's sort of this person who shuts everything down with yeah. right, right, or, or or dull questions, right. I mean, you you know you've seen SNL or you know some of you have, but um, I, I think I, all that to say that the more that we can do to inspire good conversations, then the more our relationships with people might actually grow deeper. Yeah, so because we're we're talking to our friends, our family about stuff they can actually engage on, right? Without having to buy into all this other stuff first of all, and and look at at a cultural societal level, we we all I think collectively have this this huge stake in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I understand that many people might sort of chafe at the idea of someone sort of defining humanity for them. I'm I'm, I'm going to be my own person, or you know, uh, you do you. I'm going to be true to myself. These are all these are our cultural mantras. These are these are all ways of saying mm-hmm. the same thing. So I, I, I totally get that. But at the same time, our culture is deeply invested, as I've pointed out many times before, in the human rights discourse. Right? We we talk mm-hmm. about human rights all day long, whether it's women's rights, gay rights, immigrant rights, refugees' rights, prisoners' rights. All, well, all of these are subsets of this much broader category of human rights. Well. Mm-hmm. Of of course, having a definition for what it means to be human is sort of foundational to that entire project, right? Otherwise, what, what on earth are we talking mm-hmm. about? So, so you know, our, our culture talks a lot about human rights. We also talk a lot about being true to ourselves, sort of we, we define humanity for ourselves, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. you know, we're not really meant to say those things in, in, the, in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> right, because, you know, if we do, then maybe our culture might explode or something. <laughs> That's exactly it. I mean, we'll, we'll go off the edge of the cliff or something. So, so we mm-hmm. take both ideas, but we, we keep them safely apart from each other. Um, you know, people, people talk about dehumanization and dehumanizing behavior all the time. I mean, just read the papers or whatever, just whatever. We, it's just constantly this, this phrase comes up. Mm-hmm. And we just assume that people have a definition. Otherwise, how would, they, how would we know? But, but it's, it's one of those things, mm-hmm. like I said, we just take it for granted. Um, 
I, I was having a coffee with a friend uh, a, a couple of months back. Uh, it was actually, mm. I think it was my last coffee at Amrita's before everything shut down. <laughs> and so th this friend mm. is, uh, mm. is an atheist. And uh, we, were, we were talking about all this and she said, what does it mean to be human? Well, surely that's a really easy uh, thing to answer. Now, she's a very mm. thoughtful person. You know, she has a PhD in psychology and all that, right? But, but she just sort of takes it for granted. So uh, well, what I did is I just pointed out the guy next to me who was way better looking and better built. And I said, so really? <laughs> and, and tell me, which, which one of us is more human? <laughs> well, yeah. or, there, or there's plenty of people who are, are way smarter than me and a higher IQ. Okay, sure. are, are they more human than me? Am I less human than them? Right. Oh, she, she quickly uh, got caught up. She got the point. Right. Well, you know, I think it's a well-known fact that people with abs tend to be slightly more human than others. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. It reminds me of uh, the author Wendell Berry, and I've been reading quite a bit of him lately. He's, he's an incredible guy. He left New York yeah, uh, in the 19... Yeah, he's great. He left New York in the 1960s uh, to start a small farm uh, in, in Kentucky. And... In, in one of his poems titled uh, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front, he says, um, he says this, so friends, every day do something that won't compute, love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing, take all that you have and be poor, love someone who does not deserve it. And then the poem continues on for a bit, but then he ends with the simple line, practice resurrection. I love that, practice, practice resurrection. So it's not just about you know being the strongest and smartest. He's talking about a sort of a life shaped around resurrection, um, yeah. which isn't just this sort of abstract proposition or belief. It's a practice, mm -hmm. um, as as we talked about earlier, of shaping humanity that our lives around or humanity around uh, the humanity that God's vindicated in, in, in Christ. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's essentially what Paul, Paul is saying. Every time he talks about knowing the power of the resurrection, that's the phrase he uses, um, I, I think we can actually tie the, the, the poem he just quoted back to something Paul says in Philippians. Uh, Paul, Paul says, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection uh, to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, um, but I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Uh, so it's a, it's a fairly well-known passage. If you've been around church for a while, you, you, you'll, have, you'll have come across this. And I used to find this a very mysterious uh, thing. You know, what, what does it mean to know the power of the resurrection or, or participate in Christ's sufferings or to attain to the resurrection? What, what, what's Paul talking about? Well, mm. when we start to understand this passage in the context of the, the story we, we've been narrating, to participate in Christ's sufferings is to contend for the shape of humanity, which yeah. is what Christ was doing in, in, in his suffering. He was contending for the shape of humanity, for humanity to look a certain way. Um, I want to become like Christ in his death. He means I, I want to reflect God's image in my death as Christ does up until his last breath. When Paul says, I, I want to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me, he's talking about, taking hold of that renewed, fully human way of life, um, mm -hmm. to, take, to take part in, the, in this humanity-shaping project. 
I mean, I'm, I'm not sure we, we naturally think on that kind of scale, but that, that's right. a vast scale, uh, which we're being invited to think on. And, and I think that's, that's what it means to know the, the, the power of the resurrection, as Paul puts it. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I'm not saying this lightly when, when I say that it is amazing that we've been invited into a project of this scale and this magnitude. Yeah. It seems that a community like Trinity Heights if we were actually able to wrap our heads around the size of this project, then things really do begin to shift. Uh, if we can truly see ourselves, I guess, embedded within the trajectory of history itself, then the results could be remarkable. Yeah, and, and I think any, any community that practices re the resurrection has precisely that, that long, very long view of things. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Stephen. These quarantine sessions have been great, you know, and maybe one day we might actually be able to have one of these conversations in person soon. That would be fun. Uh, yeah, back in Amrita or something uh, over a nice cup of coffee even. Uh, yeah, a, res a resurrection of sorts. That, that, that would be <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah, well, I just want to say thank you as well to uh, all you listening in today. Uh, conversations like this aren't meant to be one-sided or just between Stephen and I, uh, we, we re reiterate this at the end of all of these discussions. We just hope that they are um, a conduit uh, to continue to reach out to one another, to talk things through. And uh, Trinity Heights as a church and as a community does thrive when we're all able to kind of hash things out together. So we truly mean it uh, when we say talk soon. Mm -hmm.